become somewhat habitual on the program, I want to start off with a question to get your cognitive juices flowing, get you thinking about the underlying principles that we're going to apply here tonight. And the question is this, why does a thief steal? Why does a thief steal? Why does anyone ever engage in violence or use force to try to achieve something? And, you know, rather than just start off with giving you a direct answer to the question, I want you to think about it a little bit, and I'm going to give you some time and, and fill that time with uh, some musings from Ayn Rand, and then we're going to lead all this into a consideration of a piece over the New York Times entitled How Conservatives Weaponized the First Amendment, wherein you will hear open disdain from the leftist academia and uh, leftist politicians and activists against free speech. The, the left has decided they now hate free speech and that it must be done away with. We, we have to get rid of the First Amendment, if not in actuality, if not, you know, they don't have the courage of their convictions to just flat out try to repeal it, but they want to effectively eliminate the right to freely express yourself. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM. You can catch us streaming at Twin Cities News Talk.com and your iHeart app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you joining us. We are live and local this Friday evening, taking you into your weekend. And uh, we do have, because it's a Friday, we're going to do a little freestyle action, which is pretty typical of us here on the program. Going into the weekend, we are a little bit looser in terms of the the topics we'll accept from callers. So if you're if you're feeling the vibe of what I'm talking about tonight, what I start off the show with, we can go with that. But if you want to steer us in a different direction, if you want to review some of the things that we talked about earlier this week, whether it's the Blevins shooting and the the release of the body cam footage and the announcement by Hennepin County Attorney Mike Freeman that he was not going to pursue charges against the officers involved and the subsequent fallout from that, of which there's been much. We can talk about that. Uh, we can talk about the, the latest headlines regarding the, the uh, special counsel, Robert Mueller, and the ongoing effort to try to conjure some sort of controversy uh, regarding the Trump administration. We could talk about the feud that's taking place and we will eventually get to it at some point here the feud taking place with donald trump and the Koch brothers and now it's it's been stepped up a notch uh, much to my chagrin we'll get to that at some point here tonight but all of that is fair game 651-989-5855 is the number to join us brad omelin produces the show and takes those calls so Again, my question to start off the show is, you know, why does a thief steal? And, and related, you know, maybe that's not specific enough. The real question is, how does a thief feel about himself after he steals? And, you know, I think it's fair to say that no matter how vile the human being in question is, there is some degree of shame. There's some degree of certainly a desire to conceal the truth about one's action when it comes to, you know, deciding to violate the rights of somebody else, deciding to steal, deciding to, to assault, right? There's this natural sort of 
fig leaf that we want to put over ourselves to hide our sin from the rest of the world. And Ayn Rand talked about this when she talked about the the distinction between you know her definition of selfishness versus the popular conception of the word. The word selfish in our in the in the common discourse, you know, when you hear the word right now, selfish, the word selfish, there's a negative connotation to it. You know, somebody who's called selfish is going to have an immediate defensive reaction and, and say, no, 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 I'm not selfish. Don't call me that. And the, and the person who calls someone else selfish is not giving them a compliment, right? Like this is, it's, there's a negative connotation to this word. Ayn Rand desperately wanted to change that. She wanted to redefine our perception of what selfishness is. And her case was that rational self-interest being rationally, rationally acting in your own interest, being selfish, is a good thing, always. That it lies at the root of morality. That the purpose, the, the, the way in which we know that something is right or wrong is in it, whether or not it upholds life and the requirements of life and is a val- of value to life. And so you know, when a, when a businessman seeks after profit... He does so for selfish reasons and should be proud of that because he's providing that which he needs in order to survive and thrive and flourish and pursue happiness. And that is a moral good. You shouldn't be ashamed of that. Now, in contrast, when people think of the word selfishness or they consider the word selfish, they often think of somebody like, I'm trying to remember the name of the guy, the uh, who's the Enron guy? Or no, it wasn't Enron. But one one of these guys, yeah, I don't know why I can't think of his name off the top of my head. The one who ran the the Ponzi scheme, Bernie Madoff. Bernie Madoff. Thank you. That's exactly who I was thinking of. You think of Bernie Madoff as an example. You know, people would think, oh, there's a selfish guy, right? He ran a Ponzi scheme. He defrauded a bunch of people. He stole. And what Ayn Rand would say in response to a case like that is that he was not acting selfishly, not in the rational sense, not truthfully, because because what is the ultimate consequence of his actions? Was it truly self-serving in in the full and spiritual sense of the word? You know, where is he now? And even if he didn't get caught, and this is the root of what I want to get after tonight, even if he didn't get caught, even if he was still somehow running the scheme today, and had never been caught, and was still benefiting from his ill-gotten gains, it still would not actually be in his best interest to do what he did, because he would know, he would know, that he had defrauded people. He would know that he didn't deserve what he had, and that has a spiritual, psychological effect on a person's soul. And, you know, the reason why I spend so much time making this point as a precursor to what we're going to get into here with the left and their disdain, their open disdain for free speech is because the case that the left is making against free speech, the case that they're making is that their ideas aren't winning in an open marketplace of ideas. Their prescriptions, their cultural priorities their agenda is not winning when competed against 
in an open market. And so they want to close the market. They want to initiate force. They want to punish people for saying things that they disagree with. They want to bring out the club. They want to point the gun, metaphorically and ultimately, literally. Because, you know, ultimately, if, if you make certain speech illegal, or if you make anything illegal, ultimately the way it's enforced is at the point of a gun. Somebody with a badge shows up with a gun and forces you to not do it or punishes you for doing it, right? And so the, the question becomes, or the, what we have to realize about this, is that by turning to force, by turning against free speech, the left is actually making a profound admission. They're admitting openly, perhaps unwittingly, but openly, that their ideas suck, that their ideas are worthless, that their ideas can't compete on, a, on an open stage with the ideas of the right, with the ideas of liberty and freedom and prosperity and individual rights. That the only way that they can succeed is by pulling the gun out of our holster or picking up a club or spraying you with mace or shouting you down at your rally or whatever the case may be. That's what they're admitting. Do you think that part of the reason why the Second Amendment has become so controversial lately is because the First Amendment has become controversial as well? Because it's a provocative idea. It's because bound. part of what makes the First Amendment so powerful is the Second Amendment. The fact that you have the right to die for what you say. So if we start making elements of speech illegal and police start enforcing that and coming after people with guns, those people of which who might have guns themselves could uh, defend themselves with the guns because of their speech. But then in turn, people will see this as gun violence and want to ban this and make more restrictions on the Second Amendment as well. There's definitely a relationship between the first and the second. The way people usually put it is that the second is there to protect the first. And the, a, a manifestation of that along the lines of what you're talking about is, you know, the, in the terms of the dynamic of how the left is approaching the concept of free speech, it's true. The, while they're, they're attacking both of these freedoms, they're talking, attacking both of these amendments because there is a relationship between the two. If you, if you go after speech, then that gives you the pretext to then go after people with your enforcement of your speech codes, which is only going to be effective if you've also disarmed them. That's basically what Brad's getting after, if I'm understanding it correctly. Yeah, the, I guess that's the contrapositive, yes. <laughs> All right. So, you know, again, and we'll get into this piece with the New York Times and, you know, take your phone calls as well, 651-989-5855 when we get on the other side of the break. But again, the premise that I wanted to start off with tonight in order to, or the, the idea that I wanted to plant in your head in order to frame our discussion of this New York Times piece and the left's attack upon free speech is that what we should be hopeful in the midst of this darkness. There's a ray of light in the midst of this darkness that we're about to consider. And the ray of light is they're admitting every time the left turns to force, every time the left says, we need to shut you down, we need to ban you, we need to, to curtail you, we need to pass a law, we need to be more restrictive, every time they do that, they're admitting that their ideas suck. They're admitting that they can't compete in an open marketplace. And that's good for us. It's good for us. I've said it before that 
There is, there's no reason why the, the fundamental moral premise of the political right should, should even have to compete against the fundamental moral premise of the left. The, the, the juxtaposition between the two, on the one hand, the culture of grievance, the culture of victimization, the culture of conquest, whereby you can only secure your values by seizing them from someone else, the oppressor class, right? The the darkness and negativity and angst of that worldview when compared to and juxtaposed against the hope, the real hope, and the limitless potential and the prosperity of the of the libertarian notions of individual rights and individual freedom and political and economic liberty. There's no contest between these two views, and they know it which is why they're turning to violence. It's why they're turning to, whether it's the violence of the mob in the form of something like Antifa or the violence of the state informed by their public policy prescriptions. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. So it's now open warfare on the freedom of speech declared by the left. I mean, they're not even mincing words about it at all. There's no, there's no, it's just open to state expressed on the pages of the New York Times by prominent leftists in the academia and in political circles. And they just, they don't like freedom of expression. And it's, as we get into this piece here, when we get to the part where they actually start to articulate, where they start to, to quote folks as to why they don't like free speech anymore, why they don't like the First Amendment anymore, it's extraordinarily revealing. It's, you know, it's, it's shocking and it's not. It's not in that this is actually quite consistent with everything we know about the left, that they would feel this way. But it's, it's shocking to, that they're so shameless and out in the open with it. Because what it indicates is that, you know, I, I don't feel like this is really a shift that we're about to explore here. I think this is where the left has always been at. But what has changed, just like with so much of, of their, their rhetoric and their policy positions over time, what has changed is the Overton window that Glenn Beck used to talk about, wrote a whole book about, which is the acceptable limits of discourse, the acceptable limits of what people are willing to tolerate within the the public back and forth and you know we're, we're now at a point where it's apparently okay to say yeah i'm not for the first amendment i'm not for free speech i think it's a bad thing from the new york times on the final day of the supreme court term last week justice elena kagan sounded an alarm the court's five conservative members citing the first amendment had just dealt public unions a devastating blow The day before, the same majority had used the First Amendment to reject a California law requiring religiously oriented crisis pregnancy centers to provide women with information about abortion. Now, just to pause there to to make sure you understand what this case was, there was a law in California that said if you are a crisis pregnancy center that's anti-abortion, right, like your whole point for existing is to help women who are pregnant and in crisis and considering abortion to find alternatives, There was a law on the books in the state requiring them to provide those women with information about abortion, which was against their own conscience, right? Like the whole reason they exist 
is to combat abortion by providing information about alternatives. And they were be, they were being told, you will speak. You will use your resources in order to promote an idea that you fundamentally disagree with. Now, the, how is it at all controversial that the Supreme Court said, no, you can't do that. You can't force somebody to say something that they don't agree with. I mean, isn't that... Isn't that fundamental? Isn't that self-evident? Not to the left. They're concerned about it. Continuing at the New York Times, conservatives said Justice Kagan, who was part of the court's four-member liberal wing, were, quote, weaponizing the First Amendment, unquote. Now, I've said before that whatever the left says, the opposite is true. As As a rule of thumb, whatever the left says, the opposite is true. This language is a perfect example of it. Weaponizing the First Amendment. Let me let me ask you this. How do you weaponize a freedom? How do you weaponize the right to do something, to say something, to express yourself? How how can you make a weapon of that? And in truth, the the reality is is that the weaponization here is on their side of the debate. They're the ones who want to introduce force. They're the ones who want to initiate force against those with whom they disagree. And so they're the ones who are bringing weaponization to the table and doing so in the Orwellian fashion of accusing their opponents of doing what they are actually doing. This is going to be tough to get through this thing. (laughs) We've only two paragraphs in. The two decisions were the latest in a stunning run of victories for a conservative agenda that has increasingly been built on the foundation of free speech. Conservative groups borrowing and building on arguments developed by liberals have used the First Amendment to justify unlimited campaign spending, (gasps) discrimination against gay couples, and attacks on the regulation of tobacco, pharmaceuticals, and guns. The right, which had for years been hostile to and very nervous about strong First Amendment, has rediscovered it, said Bert Newborn, a law professor at the New York University. The Citizens United campaign finance case, for instance, was decided on free speech grounds with the five justice conservative majority ruling that the First Amendment protects unlimited campaign spending by corporations. The government, the majority said, has no business regulating political speech. Isn't I mean. It's the majority, okay, yes, the majority said that, but you know what else says that? The frickin' First Amendment. Like, that's that's what it says. That's what the cla- Congress shall make no law infringing upon the freedom of speech. That's what that means. Continuing. The dissenters responded <laughs> that the First Amendment did not require allowing corporations or corporate money to flood the political marketplace and corrupt democracy. Now, This is what I'm talking about. When I talk about them admitting that their ideas suck and that their ideas cannot compete in the marketplace of ideas, this is how they do it. When they say that corporate money flooding the political marketplace corrupts democracy, what they're saying is is that the the resources that are introduced into the the marketplace of ideas, where the money is, where the support lies, and in other words, where the value is, is crowding out their political agenda. And they're right. They're absolutely right. They're absolutely right. Because there is no value in their ideas. It's kind of how that works, right? Like we, we judge, this is how we determine where value is at. We determine where value is at 
through the marketplace, through the exchange of buyer and seller. In the marketplace of ideas, it's speaker and listener. The, the more people who are willing to listen to the speech, the more value that speech has. That's how we know it has value. And so, you know, the, the, the and we've seen examples of campaigns where they've spent a lot of money, right? They've spent tons of money. They, Ocasio-Cortez is an example. Totally outspent. But she still won, right? So this idea that money corrupts democracy, all the money does is, is provide a platform upon which somebody can introduce or present whatever speech they're bringing to the table. It doesn't cause people to accept it, right? Like, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter how much money Bernie Sanders spends. He's never going to convince me that his stupid ideas are anything but dumb, right? Same thing with you. It doesn't matter how much money the left spends, they're never going to convince you that their ideas are right. So this, this idea that, well, there's too much money out there in politics, and the money is the problem, it's a vote of no confidence in your judgment, first of all. You know, the idea that you basically you can be paid off if somebody spends enough money on a commercial that you're going to change your mind and vote differently, right? And it also, it also is an attack upon the notion of free speech. I mean, fundamentally, that's what it is. It's we don't want people who we disagree with to be able to speak in the first place. And as we get deeper into this article at the New York Times, the truth of that, the truth that that's really what lies at the heart of this is opposition to the, the existence of dissenting speech is going to become very, very clear. We'll talk with Matt and Maplewood and take your calls at 651-989-5855 when we return to Twin Cities News Talk. Doc. We're talking about the left's now open disdain for the First Amendment and the free speech which it protects. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We are live and local tonight, 9 to 11 weeknights, 651-989-5855 if you want to join us. We're doing a little Freelance Friday as well, so if you want to take the conversation in a different direction, we're more than happy to accommodate you. Let's talk to Matt in Maplewood. Welcome to the program. Thanks for taking my I just want the irony of the fact that, I mean, I think the First Amendment and the Second Amendment there's a reason they're right next to each other, and I think part of the reason, of course, is you defend the, the you know defend the first with the second. But even further is that the first amendment is a pressure valve, in a sense, to the second amendment. So, in other words, when people stop talking and debating, mm-hmm. there's going to be conflict. I mean, inevitably, in politi- you know, politics and well as public debate, there's going to be conflict. Right. And you can either relieve that pressure through open debate and and conflict. Uh, of ideas or by talking things out and, and debating ideas and you know the best ideas go to the top and the best, the worst ones go to the bottom or you can eventually what's going to happen is if you marginalize or you you reduce the ability of that debate to oh. physical conflict and i think that's where we're heading unfortunately because of the uh, less ability or the their notion that they need to shut down speech that they right. don't agree with and i agree with you that it does point out how weak their arguments are and right. i think a large point to why it's so weak is because it runs counter to natural law. Um, you know, a lot of the things that are self-evident, for example, I mean, just a, just one example is, you know, a basic tenet of, I think, anybody that has any sense is that people don't work for other people, are the people unless they're forced to. You know, people are self-interested, and I think that's one, you know, in, in economics, that's one area where, 
the left is totally it's, it's obvious that it's a losing proposition. Right. Because anybody with any common sense knows that that's just not the way it works. Right. So. Yeah. Well, absolutely. And I, I appreciate the call. Appreciate the insights, Matt. It's uh, Thank you. definitely, definitely right on. You know, the that's just it. When it comes to to self interest, it's it's absolutely fascinating. You know, the the notion that uh, self interest is something that goes away when you keep people from being able to 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 pursue it you know, under a socialist structure or a socialist system self-interest still exists and people still pursue it they just change the means by which they pursue it you know this is this is something and this is a little bit of a side we'll get back and talk about the free speech thing here momentarily but it is friday so i welcome asides more so than usual the the phenomenon in our modern political discourse whereby the value of truth has fallen by the wayside. People don't care what's true. People don't care what's factual. Fake news. You want to know why we have fake news? We have fake news because there's no value in the truth. There's no value in the truth. And the reason there's no value in the truth is because our means by which we pursue, secure, and keep values is not entirely by being productive. The, the welfare state, we've, we've reached a point in this country, we've reached a point in our culture where we're so subsidized and the, the swamp is so deep and so mucky and there's so much value to be found in force. There's so much value to be found in the state in conquering your enemies through the, the ballot box and conquering your enemies through legislation. There's so much value there that the truth no longer matters. What matters is beating the other guy. If you can beat the other guy, then you can define your own reality at the point of a gun. That's why we have fake news. That's why there's no value of truth in truth. And it's a problem that is, it's perpetuating, it's self-perpetuating. Because as the, the controls of the state grow larger and and their roots of it grow deeper into our society the value of truth drops which means that people drift further and further away from those the principles rooted in truth which are required in order to sustain liberty it's it's like a cancer it's like a cultural cancer that we're enduring right now that has a political manifestation in terms of the the rotten health of our republic and it's a it's a serious serious problem and at its root at its root is opposition to freedom opposition to liberty and that's on full display here in this piece we're crawling through at the New York Times regarding that that displays the open disdain and disregard for the first amendment and free speech on behalf of or on the part of the left let's talk to Augie in Fridley welcome to the program hello I wanted to address the fact that the media um, really just uh, just displays or defines, uh, you know, uh, the words in in our speech, uh, specifically like red and blue states. It's like, okay, um, you know, a red state is Republican. I mean, um, I'd like to just credit Sebastian Gorka for uh, saying that, you know what? The, the left is red. The left, you know, uh, socialists are, are red. And therefore, um, we should really just twist or change things around. 
blue is Republican and American, and red is uh, socialist and or um, Democrat. All right, fair enough. I I appreciate the uh, the thought. I I am unfamiliar because I know that at one time that was the case. At one time in the past, the the color association was reversed. Blue did mean Republican, and red did mean Democrat. I don't know when that shifted or why. Maybe it's something we can we can Google over the course of our discussion tonight. But uh, I'm not I'm not sure to what degree there was a conscientious desire to disassociate the Democrats with the Reds, so to speak. I mean, it makes sense that they would want that, but I don't know if that was a conscientious part of the decision there. All right, getting back on this piece at the New York Times. So, you know, what we've established to this point is that there is there's developed over time this aversion to or this discomfort with the First Amendment and the freedom of speech, particularly as it has been applied in a number of Supreme Court cases that have redounded to the benefit of conservatives and to the benefit of uh, corporations and businesses and people, you know, anybody who's trying to get their message out and has been stopped to some degree or another through acts of the state. And the left has responded to this. They've and they and they've started to intellectualize it in terms of their their argument against free speech and they're quite explicit about it this is from the the new york times article a law professor from the university of virginia by the name of frederick shower said because so many free speech claims of the 1950s and 1960s involved anti-obscenity claims or civil rights and anti-vietnam war protests it was easy for the left to sympathize with the speakers or believe that speech in general was harmless But the claim that speech was harmless or casually inert was never true, even if it has taken recent events to convince the left of that. The question then is why the left ever believed otherwise. So, you know, what he's saying there is we liked it in the 50s and 60s. We liked free speech and we liked the First Amendment in the 50s and 60s because in the 50s and 60s, we were the ones using it in order to affect our Marxist revolution on the culture and in politics. Further down the line here, there's a gal, uh, Catherine McKinnon, a law professor at the University of Michigan, who wrote in the Free Speech Century, a collection of essays to be published this year, that once a, a defense of the powerless, the First Amendment over the last hundred years has mainly become a weapon of the powerful. Legally, what was, toward the beginning of the 20th century, a shield for radicals, artists, and activists, socialists, and pacifists, and excluded the dis- dispossessed, or, or including the excluded and the dispossessed, has become a sword for authoritarians, racists, misogynists, Nazis and Klansmen, pornographers, and corporations buying elections. So, their argument, and again, this is a, co- a couple of professors, a couple of law professors, Their argument is, quite explicitly, we liked the First Amendment when it was politically useful to us. We liked the First Amendment when it was working in our favor and advancing our causes and when we were the ones who were using it. Now it's being used by people with whom we disagree, and so now we want to shut it down. In other words, there's another way to say this. There's another way to say this, if they were going to be even more honest than they're already being. And that's that they don't actually believe, they never believed in it. 
They don't actually believe in the freedom of speech. They don't actually believe in the First Amendment, and they never did. They only ever said they did because it was a means to affecting their desired ends. And this is always true. This is another characteristic, defining characteristic of the left. They don't have any principled means. They don't care how they accomplish something. They don't have any principles at all. The only thing they want is their objective. The only thing they want is to conquer, to win, to, to win a, a total war against their political opposition, to revolt, to affect revolution, to affect their Marxist aims. They don't care how they do it. In the 50s and 60s, it was leveraging the First Amendment. Today, it's burning the First Amendment to the ground. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name's Walter Edson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Closing argument. My name's Walter Edson. 651-989-5855, the number to join us. We're talking about the open disdain being shown for the First Amendment and freedom of speech by the left as articulated, as laid out in an article in the New York Times, which just, you know, just reports it like it's like it's no big deal. It's no big deal that one half of uh, the political establishment in this country has suddenly turned on the First Amendment to the Constitution. It's just another day in America. All the news that's fit to print. And we'll talk more about the New York Times as we move on here uh, this evening. Let's talk first to Zach in Lino Lakes. Welcome to the program. Yeah. So uh, the, the the seeds for this have been sown in, in American culture for a long time. See, the thing is, uh, conservatives don't like it when, uh, you know, businesses like Facebook or whatever, they, they, they start censoring conservative voices and stuff and, yeah, sure, they, they're a private company, they have the right to do that, mm-hmm. but most of people would agree that that's a jerk move and it's a power move. Right. Now, uh, how many of these same people cheer when uh, another private company um, tells people that, you know, you better stand for the flag? You see, the thing is, it's it's on both sides of the aisle. And, uh, like, and if, how many listeners are conservative, Bible-believing Christians? And uh, how often does your church talk about homosexuality? Well, I think that's a good thing that we should be talking about that. But there, the Bible uses a very strong word for that in the Bible. It's, it uses the word toevah, which means abomination. Now, the Bible does use that for other things, too, like dishonest weights and measures. Mm-hmm. So um, how often do they talk about double standards in law? Mm. Double standards in currency, mm. double standards in all sorts of areas of life. Right. They don't touch that, but they do touch the more popular thing to talk about. Well, and and the reason it's more popular to talk about is because the 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 objects of criticism represent a slim minority of the population. In other words, it's somebody else. It's not if you're not casting a light on your own sin, you're casting a light on somebody else's. So I, I mean, the question is, uh, are you? And anybody listening, are you emphasizing the other side's evils? Are you taking a good look in the mirror and seeing, well, do I have the same sort of power-hungry 
power religion, which is what Reconstructionists have been saying lately, and they've been talking a lot about power religion. Do I try to impose my will on other people in some way, shape, or form by saying, oh, I can do it because it's within my rights. I can do, no, it's, and, and I have the authority to do that. I have the power. We should be asking those questions. And I, I really don't think most sides of any political debate have the willingness to do that. But the Bible says, as far as Christians go, that judgment begins in the house of God. And if we want to, if we want look at the liberals outside us first, I think we're missing the point. It's a fair point. I appreciate the thoughts as always, Zach. Uh, Zach is always uh, willing to to turn that spotlight of reflection and criticism back upon us and back upon uh, ourselves, and I think that's that's worthwhile. We do need to be introspective. We do need to hold ourselves to the standards which we articulate. Be that as it may, we're going to continue here with uh, our consideration of what is going on in the left. Uh, we can we can spend some time uh, l- later this hour or uh, in subsequent shows digging down into you know how we got here, <laughs> which which is probably something we'll need to unpack for for several days if we're really going to get after it. There is a piece at Intellectual Takeout that is entitled "The Alt Left Is Real," and you know I have I have a nit to pick with this author. But I understand what it is that he's trying to say. You know, his his basic point is that the the alt what he calls the alt left. Well, I'll, ju- I'll just disclose it here and then try to make my point. He writes, when asked to define alt left, I would describe it as a leftist but illiberal authoritarian ideology rooted in postmodernism and neo Marxism that supports censorship, condones violence in response to speech. We've been talking a lot about that so far tonight is obsessed with identity politics and functions like a secular religion that gives its believers a sense of moral self-worth. It masquerades as a form of liberalism, but it has more in common with authoritarianism than its true believers can admit. It claims to speak for the marginalized, but it either ignores or attempts to hatefully shame members of marginalized groups who do not subscribe to the ideology. It is not simply anti-fa, it is the ideology that undergirds Antifa, and it has swallowed much of Black Lives Matter and intersectional third-wave feminism. It wishes to swallow the whole of the left, the country, the world. It is rooted in nihilism, resentfulness, and arrogance, though it persists or it presents itself as being rooted in equality, justice, and morality. It favors collectivism over individualism, statism over liberty, forced equality of outcomes over freedom. Now, I agree with this definition, right? I mean, we talk about this every night to one degree or another on the show. What, what I quibble with is the describing it as the alt-left, putting the, the prefix alt in front of it. There's nothing alternative about this definition. This is the left. That's what the left is, right? Now, I, but I understand what the author's getting after, what he's trying to say. What he's trying to say is, look, liberalism, classic liberalism, where the Democratic Party used to be and what it used to mean to be a liberal was that you were for things like freedom of speech, right? He quotes a guy by the name of uh, Majad Nawaz, who has been credited with coining the term regressive left, who said today's active organized left is no longer liberal. A liberal will always prioritize free speech over offense, 
this behavior, censorship on the organized left, post-factual behavior, violence being seen as an option, and prioritizing group identity over individual rights, that isn't liberal. And so these are folks who identify as liberal, but are do not want to be grouped in with what has become the left. And look, I sympathize with them. By all means, walk away. We're waiting with open arms. Come on over here. Be part of the the reasonable ones, the sensible ones who uh, uphold these values. Because classical liberalism and conservatism, as you and I understand it, is the exact same thing. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. gotten into you know speaking of the new york times we haven't gotten into this controversy regarding their newest editorial board member how are they pronouncing this jong sarah jong i don't know we're gonna go with jong until i know otherwise until i'm corrected but uh she's a racist (laughs) you know it's i mean it's hard to even have a conversation about actual racism nowadays because the term has been so overused it's been so drained of its meaning in terms of how loosely it's thrown around and how inappropriately it's utilized particularly by the left almost exclusively by the left that it's like crying wolf right you know you, you at this point when you hear the word racist you just tune it out because, yeah, of course, somebody's racist, right? Everybody's all, we're all racist now, right? And when everybody's racist, nobody is. That's kind of the, the net effect. That's, that's one of the themes that prevailed in the 2016 election was this sense that, you know, we just, we just don't care anymore. We don't care about any of any complaint that may be legitimate because we're so sick and tired of hearing about all the illegitimate ones that we're just done with the entire concept. Well, we do have an example of actual racism here to consider. Closing argument. My name is Walter Edson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM. Streaming at com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. You can join us at 651-989-5855. We are doing Freestyle Friday, so whatever direction you want to take the conversation in, we will go. You want to go back and talk about some of the things that happened earlier this week. That's fine. You want to bring up a totally random topic, something that has nothing whatsoever to do with politics. That's fine. We can talk uh, pop culture. We can talk movies. We can talk television. Whatever you want. I'm uh, I'm open to it on a Friday. Brad Ullman takes your calls and produces the show. So, let's start with the Daily Wire. Sarah Jong, a writer and Harvard-educated lawyer born in South Korea, has joined the New York Times editorial board. Sarah has guided readers through the digital world with verve and erudition, staying ahead of every turn on the vast beat of, or that is the Internet, the Times said in an announcement about her hiring on Wednesday. But by Thursday, some highly charged posts on her Twitter account began making the news. Here's some examples, and apparently I'm going to have to to watch how directly I quote these because we might uh, be on the verge of some FCC violations here. I got the dump belt, don't worry. <laughs> she wrote on Twitter in July of 2014, Oh man, it's kind of sick how much joy I get out of being cruel to old white men. 
There were plenty of others, some with much profanity. Oh, let's see, how much of this can I salvage? White people marking up the internet with their opinions like dogs pissing on fire hydrants, she wrote in November of 2014. Are white people genetically predisposed to burn faster in the sun, thus logically only fit to live underground like groveling goblins? She wrote in December 2014. Now, think about that. Think about that language. Intersperse it with any other race. Any other. Would there be any doubt whatsoever? First of all, would the New York Times hesitate for a second, for a nanosecond, to fire somebody who had said something similar to this about blacks or Asians or Mexicans. There is no doubt that the person would be fired. And look, I'm not saying she ought to be. You know, honestly, you know, kind of in line with uh, Zach from Lionel Lakes and the point that he was making, the the notion, the, this idea that we're going to fire everybody over things that they've said in the past or things that they've tweeted. Look. If it's if it's in the interest of your market to, to do so, if it's in the interest of your business to do to do so, by all means, go ahead. And the 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 point here, I think, that needs to be made is that according to the New York Times, obviously, by virtue of the fact that they're willing to keep this gal on, they don't believe it's of any detriment to their business. They don't believe that it's of any detriment to their market. And here's the thing: they're probably right, right? I mean, who's reading the New York Times? Who's subscribing to the New York Times? It's not people who, you know, think along the lines of you and me. Continuing at the Daily Wire, it appears as though the New York Times has given up on appearing even the least bit credible with their new hire, Sarah Zhang. Culture Chronicles wrote in a piece headlined, New York Times hires openly anti-white racist to their editorial board. However, it wasn't long before members of uh, the poll and Reddit uncovered her past tweets, which paint a disturbing picture of anti-white racism. Twitterers, including Glenn Beck, took aim at the new hire of the New York Times. Uh, Glenn Beck wrote, what will the New York Times do here? Are these jokes out of context? Does it matter? We now at least know a little more about her and the Times. They clearly knew this before she was hired. And there's another a number of other posts here that are, uh, indicative of this issue. Now you go over to New York Magazine, not associated with the New York Times, and they have a piece by Andrew Sullivan entitled When Racism is Fit to Print. He writes, From one perspective, that commonly held by people outside of the confines of the political left, th- this gal obviously is a racist. A series of tweets from 2013 to 2015 reveal a vicious hatred of an entire group of people based only on their skin color. If that sounds harsh, let's review a few, shall we? And again, I got to I got to edit these for radio. White men are BS, she once tweeted. A succinct vent at least, but notice she's not in any way attacking specific white men for some particular failing, just all white men for well, existing or this series of ruminations. Have you ever tried to figure out all the things that white people are allowed to do that aren't cultural appropriation? There's literally nothing like skiing, maybe, and also golf. White people aren't even allowed to have polo. Did you know that? Like, don't you just feel bad? Why can't we give white people a break? Lacrosse isn't for white people either. It must be so boring to be white. I I don't even understand where she's coming from there. 
Like it's <laughs> what drives something like this or this. This is another one of her tweets. Basically, I'm just imagining waking up white every morning with a terrible existential dread that I have no culture. I can't say I'm offended by this. This is, again, uh, Andrew Sullivan writing about it. It's even mildly amusing, if a little bonkers. But it does reveal a worldview in which white people, all of them, are cultural parasites and contemptuously dull. A little more disturbing is what you might call eliminationist rhetoric, language that wishes an entire race could be wiped off the face of the earth. Hashtag cancel white people. That's something that she has used. Or, another one of her tweets, White people have stopped breeding. You'll all go extinct soon. That was my plan all along. One simple rule I have, and this is again Andrew Sullivan, one simple rule I have about describing groups of human beings is that I try not to use a term that equates them with animals. Zhang apparently has no problem doing so. Speaking of animals, here's another gem from her Twitter feed. <sighs> again, I got to edit We already it. read this one. Oh, did we? Okay. Um, and, and we already read the next one as well. You know, it, suffice it to say, the evidence is ample. It goes on and on and on and on. That this gal is without any question, undistinguishably, or undisputedly, I should say, a racist, an anti-white racist. Now, the problem with this, in terms of our, our capacity to combat it, is that we, we've entered a, a period in time, a period in our culture, where the, the dominant worldview on the political left, and even to a larger extent just in the mainstream pop culture, is that one cannot be racist if the object of their bigotry is white people. If the, if the group in question that you are generalizing that you are castigating, that you're even wishing death or non-existence upon. If the group is white, it's okay. It's totally fine. And again, similar. Th this is revealing of the same underlying principle that we rooted out in the first hour in our exploration of the left's disdain for the First Amendment and disdain for free speech. What it reveals is that they're not actually about what they say they're about, right? You know, they say, they've said in the past that they're f about free speech, they're about liberty, they're about be being, uh, having, having open discourse, right? But they only meant that to the extent that it advanced their political agenda, their revolutionary agenda, their Marxist agenda. That's what they really meant. And similarly here, when they claim to be against racism, and for tolerance and against bigotry. What they really mean is that they're against those things only to the extent and only in the particular circumstances and contexts wherein it advances their revolutionary goals. It's not a principle. It's not as though they actually have a fundamental disagreement with the concept of bigotry. Obviously, they don't. The left is the most bigoted force in American culture, bar none. Bar none. Nobody else can even come close. Right? I mean, at least the alt-right. Look, the alt-right's horrible. The alt-right is horrific. The alt-right is white nationalists who think that my existence as a mixed-race individual and the existence of my children is an affront, an assault upon the ethnic purity of the American culture. Right? Like, that's what they believe. Now, that's horrible. And I hate them, and I hate everything that they stand for. But they are better 
than the left. They're better than the left because at least they aren't trying to shut other people down. And they're open about what they believe. And they're open about what they believe. I mean, for Christ's sake, they get permits. They get permits and they provide their own security at their rallies, right? Like, I, I disagree fundamentally with everything they say. But at least they recognize my right to say I disagree with them. That's better than the left. The left doesn't do even do that. They want to shut their opposition down. They are more intolerant than people who actually identify as Nazis. And this is where, you know, we had another headline earlier this week that we didn't never got to. You know, the the it was in Politico, I think, and I'm sure other outlets, publications wrote about it as well. You know, the left was all up in arms and rending robes and gnashing teeth and wringing their hands because Donald Trump Jr. had attended a screening of Dinesh D'Souza's latest film. And apparently one of the themes of the film is that the Democratic Party platform has much in common with the Nazi platform of the 1930s. Now, I haven't I haven't seen Dinesh D'Souza's film. I haven't read the book that it's based upon. I don't know what the context was in which this comment was made. But suffice it to say, there was there was much rending of robes and gnashing of teeth and the presentation of this is so terrible and outrageous and, and beyond the pale that Donald Trump Jr. would compare Democrats to Nazis. Let, let me take it further than Donald Trump Jr. You ready for this? Buckle up. Let me take it further. They're worse. They're worse. In the modern context, they're worse. Now, you know, maybe the, maybe the, the, distinguishing, the, the uh, distinction to make here is between the 1930s and today. The people today, the alt-right today, the people who identify as Nazis today, are better behaved, are more civil than the mainstream left is. Obviously. Like, you just comparing one group's conduct to the other group's conduct. There is no contest. And so, you know, that's why, as a black man, that's why I'm more concerned and more focused on the left than I am with white nationalists. Because, as it turns out, the white nationalists aren't actually coming after me. I've never had to contend with a white nationalist who wanted to deprive me of my rights or who was actively working to do so. They may believe, they may want that ultimately, but they're not physically, imminently threatening me. The left is. That's the difference. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, closing argument. My name's Walter Outson, 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. Let's go right to Mike in St. Paul. Welcome to the program on a Friday night. Hey, Walter. Uh, hey, you know, I generally enjoy your program. I don't agree with you very often, but uh, but, but I like listening to you. Um, and I just wanted to uh, to challenge you and your attention that, that the alt-right is, is better than, than the left in any way. And I've been listening for like an hour, so I didn't like pull it out of context mm-hmm. or anything like that. But, but like right before that, literally, you're saying uh, like, you know, the alt, if the alt-right had their way, they'd kill me and my children because of my biracial... No, or, no, you know, I'm, that's, I'm, not I'm, I'm that's not what I said. That's not what I said. I'm summarizing. Incorrectly. It's a bad paraphrase. But that, but that sounded like what, what you were... The point that you were trying to make to me anyway, like I said, I've been listening for a while now, and like I, I don't feel like I said sure. anything out of context. 
Um, and so, and then the other thing too is because, because I like your program and I like the way that you sort of address things, even if I don't agree with you, I kind of want to try to help you out. It's something you were talking about the first, uh, first amendment where you were saying that, um, apparently it's, it's become okay to be racist as long as the, um, the object of that racism, um, is white. I'd like to challenge you on that just, just, just a bit. Um, I think the point that you're missing is that, um, I think the left point that they're trying to make is that it, it's okay racism is uh it's okay if the object of that racism is against the oppressing force right the dominant culture right and i see where it's a slippery slope because at some point in the future right um people of color will become that dominant culture and then what are we going to do right but for now that's that's their argument it's not that that they're necessarily attacking white people specifically it's that they're attacking uh, dominant culture. And so what you what what I hear you problem. saying what I hear you saying is just restating my point because my my point is is that they they in actuality they don't have any fundamental principled opposition to racism as such. What they're interested in is affecting their revolutionary objective. And right now, because because they perceive white people to be the dominant culture, the oppressor, and it's politically useful to the revolution in order to attack them, then it's okay to attack them. It's not that they have a problem with racism at all. It's that they have a problem with the dominant culture. Yeah, I mean, I think you're kind of getting to, like, where there's a whole, it's a means to end thing. And I don't always subscribe to that ideology, but I think that that ideology is prevalent among the left right now, that, you know, the means to an end and that it's okay to employ these certain tactics if it, like, accomplishes our goals. But I think that's that that's where it's rooted, right? So they're thinking that um, it's okay to attack people who are um, who are anti, uh, you know, equality and you know, liberty and. Uh, but in the case of this gal, justice. in in the case of this Sarah Jung gal, yeah. it's it's she, she's not even going after people based upon, like it's not even ideological, right? Like she's not saying, well, people who support the ideas that I'm against. Are all of these things she's saying that white people on by virtue of the fact that they are white so she's lumping everybody who's white into this category yeah. of the oppressor regardless so I, I don't know how how white liberals feel about being ca- casted into this giant pool of the opposing for or the uh, oppressing force I mean I, I don't know where you're at, but yeah, I know. You know, it's, you know, it's really funny. Like, okay, when it comes to free speech, right? So conservatives are all about nuance, right? Oh, we need to bring nuance into the conversation, right? Whereas, like, you know, if you were to apply nuance to to like some of her comments, like, say, I mean, I don't agree with with the way you know she says it, uh, most of them, right? But I mean, if you apply nuance to that to, to some of her comments, I and, and for for the record, I know plenty of white liberal people, mm-hmm. and like, I don't think that the white liberal people I know would be like terribly offended by those things. I think that that if if you're the kind of like white, you know, person that's like offended by those things, it might be because like you might um, actually be able to identify with some of the accusations she's making in some of the comments. But uh, honestly, I mean, I think it's I think it's if you, if you look at it from that perspective where she is actually attacking like a dominant culture, like it's, it's a social sort of commentary and not necessarily attacking a group of people look, I'm, I'm... based on their race. I'm sensitive to the argument that she's engaged in a kind of social media satire, right? Like that perhaps there is a little bit of a wink and a nod here. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna play the the game that you know some other um, folks who uh, you might hear during the day on this sure. very air might play in terms of you know assuming the absolute possible worst as to 
what her intention is. That said, come you on. You did allude to that. To your credit, to your credit, you did allude to that. So yeah. Well, and and but but I mean, even so, even if you you grant her the maximum benefit of doubt. The the idea here that we ought to excuse it, that there's that there's somehow there's some kind of legitimate social utility in employing this style of engagement, you know what, what it, I guess what you would have to assume or you would have to give credence to is the idea that the ends in this case do actually justify the means that it is more important to tear down that dominant culture than it is to oppose racism as such. And that's just not yeah. something that I can get on board with. Yeah, I just, I just wanted to. Yeah, so I also wanted to just point out. I thought I thought it was funny, like just amusing anyway. That that you tiptoed around like these, these Twitter comments and saying, "Oh, I have to really edit," you know, myself, you know, saying this and that. And then you came out like literally thirty seconds later and talked about how the alt left, how the alt right was better than the left. I just um, right. I what, the, and my point, my my point there was in, in context, which I know you caught because you've been listening. Yeah. Was that was specifically when it comes to conduct, like in terms of what they advocate for, I think they they both can go to hell. But in terms of conduct, the alt right isn't punching me in the face. The alt right isn't blocking my traffic. The alt right isn't isn't trying to come after me and tell me I can't speak. The left is doing but all of those things. They, but wouldn't they if they could, Walter? I mean, like I say, I listen to your program. I know a little about about you that you've been you know that you've shared mm-hmm. with the people listening. I mean, right. I, I know a little bit about your background and. And your identity, and I mean, would yeah, they, 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 I'm, they I'm sure they probably would. I'm sure they probably the would. And when they do, I will oppose them on that front. What I'm saying is that right now, in this moment, when it comes to conduct, which is much more important to me than thoughts, actions, what people actually do, is of much more significance to me than what people think and say. And right now, when I'm looking at conduct, there's no contest in my view. But I, I appreciate yeah. the call. I appreciate the engagement. Yeah, I hope you. you'll call back. Let's talk with, well, we'll have to talk with Mike and Farmington when we return. That call just made the time fly by. It was a good call. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Ain't nothing going on but the bombs, the rap song, hitting all night long. Like me on the black and white. I believe Twin Cities News Talk. AM 1130-1035 FM. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. It's been a much more intense Friday than we typically have when we do a live show on a Friday. It's usually much more relaxed and loose and fluid. You know, we do Freestyle Friday where we'll take the the uh, topics in whatever direction the callers want but it's been it's been pretty intense tonight talking about the open disdain that the left is showing towards the first amendment and the open racism that's been embraced by the new york times and the hiring of sarah young it's uh it's been interesting 651-989-5855 the number to join us brad ullman takes those calls and produces the show let's talk to mike in farmington thanks for holding good evening walter uh Thanks for taking my call. Absolutely. Can you hear me all right? Yep. Um, you know, usually I'll, I'll wake up in the morning and I'll kind of go to go through some different sources and some news stories, and then I came upon this story with this. I think it's, and you've probably touched upon it as well, the New York Times, I think, employed as an editor, the Sarah's Young. Yeah, yeah, we've been talking about it. Yeah, and then Andrew Sullivan came out here and, 
I was just going to read just a couple comments that I found interesting. Um, basically, these are white guys saying, this is confusing as a white, straight, Christian, historically-minded male. I'm being defended from an Asian woman's racism by a homosexual man. <laughs> Another one, basically, I'm just imagining waking up white every morning with a terrible existential dread that I have no culture, unquote. Yeah, that's from John. Yeah. leftist mantra, white people have no culture. You know, I just don't see, it's just so apparent how phony these people are, that right. they are the, the holders of future and truth. <laughs> and, I, I mean, I see, I'm sure you've seen this for decades. It's just absolutely disgusting that this goes on. And it just seems like they're getting more pathetic and, uh, you know, they're in a panic. I mean, they're reaching for anything they can. And I just don't see how this is, this kind of uh, hatred is okay in any way. I can't imagine that if this was, let's say, a white man mm -hmm. going on a rant right. about a minority group or right. a uh, transgendered group, that there'd be no way that guy would have a life anymore. Yeah. He would be literally torn to shreds. So and my, my point is, this is not okay in any respect. Mm. And this, the, the New York Times is absolutely, uh, you know, this is the wrong choice, but this is the path they're taking. Yeah. I appreciate the call, Mike. appreciate the thoughts. And it's consistent with what we've talked about in the program, uh, what I refer to as the culture of conquest, which is the, the culture of the left. I mean, the, you have to understand, you know, when we, we had uh, Mike and St. Paul call in, it was a good call, great call. And he explained this, right? Because like, we can all acknowledge if this was a white person talking about literally any other race, they would be, tomatoes would be thrown at them probably literally as well as metaphorically. They would be shouted off the stage of uh, public discourse and we would never hear from them again. The reason for the disparity in treatment, as articulated by Mike from St. Paul, is because it's affecting the revolutionary end of undermining the dominant culture. You know, the, the Marxist ideology has to cast people in one of two categories, the oppressor and the oppressed. And white people are regarded as the oppressors under the, the modern leftist worldview and historic as well. And so it's okay to be racist against white people because they are the oppressors under this view. And this division, this, this prism through which the world is viewed, wherein you're either an oppressor or the oppressed, that is the culture of conquest. It's a cultural worldview that really that only provides you those two options. You're either going to be conquered or you're going to be the conqueror. And so their whole position is we need to be the conqueror. We need to be the ones who prevail over our enemies so that we can then set the agenda, so that we can then set the terms, so that we can dictate the outcomes. Because in their view, quite sadly, they believe that's the only way by which they can obtain and keep the things that are of value to them in their lives. It's really, when you, when you fully understand it, you can conjure a, a degree of sympathy for them because they've trapped themselves in a way of thinking that's extraordinarily limiting. I mean, think about it. Think about the narrative. I think about my own dad. I've told this story before. 
My dad, I'm pretty sure, you know, I've got a son who's on the autism spectrum. High functioning, but nonetheless on it. And I'm fairly certain that my dad was as well. <laughs> the difference is, is he never got diagnosed. You know, they weren't looking for it in his day. He, he didn't have access to resources. He was born in Detroit, grew up in Detroit. I was also born in Detroit. But my dad broke away from the culture in which he was born. To a large degree, I believe, to a large degree because of his autism. Because basically, I mean, to put it, to put it bluntly, he didn't give a crap. He didn't care what anybody thought of him. You know, that's kind of part of, it's part of the, the, uh, being on the spectrum is kind of a, a social indifference. And so the efforts by his family and by the culture in which he lived to try to get him to conform with their way of thinking fell on deaf ears. He didn't care. He relied on his own judgment. He was very independent. And he believed, he calculated that if he did certain things, if he behaved in a certain way, if he engaged in certain conduct, he could make his life better. And he did. He did. That's why he was able to, to obtain the skills necessary to get better jobs over the course of his career and to eventually move us to better places to live, ultimately here in the wonderful state of Minnesota. And I was able to have the childhood I was able to have because of his unwillingness to submit to cultural expectation. But think about that. Think about that cultural expectation. Think about the mentality of the hood, the mentality of the ghetto. The, the attitude that my dad had to fight against was the, the notion, the, the way you would hear it articulated is, who do you think you are? You are highfalutin. You think you're better than the rest of us? What do you mean you're going to go to school? What do you mean you're going to get a job? What do you mean you're going to move out of here? You're no better than us. You're no better than me. What do you think? What do you think you're white? You know, that's how it would be articulated. You think you're white? You're going to, you're going to go live in the in suburbs? And that's, and there's a real, and it's, it's a truly, it's evil. I'm going to use the word evil okay, without shame. It is evil. It is an evil worldview that limits people's possibilities by telling them, no, you can't. No, you cannot succeed. No, you cannot advance. No, you cannot prevail. Because, because why? Because you're oppressed. You're oppressed. And the only way you can actually make your life better is by turning the tables on your oppressors. Now, that's not a mistake. It's not an accident. The fact that this is the, the worldview, the limiting worldview that dominates in the black community is by design for a political effect because it serves the interests of the left. It serves the interest of the Marxist to have an entire group of people and indeed to have many different constituencies, the intersectional minority coalition convinced that they are oppressed that they cannot succeed, that they cannot prevail, and that the only means by which they can obtain and keep values is by conquering their oppressors, it serves a political utility. And again, it's quite evil. When you, real, when you recognize it for what it is, it's profoundly evil. What could be more evil? I mean, short of like killing people, short of carting people off to extermination camps, what could be more evil than psychologically murdering them? psychologically undermining their sense of self-worth, hobbling their potential for the future by convincing them that they can't possibly ever have it better. 
unless they subscribe unless they support your political agenda. And yet that's what the left has done. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name's Walter Adson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Closing argument. My name's Walter Adson. 651-989-5855. The number to squeeze in a last comment here before we take you into your weekend. Let's go to Greg in Columbia Heights. Thanks for holding. Hey, good evening, Walter. Hey. Um, boy, I tell you, I was, look, Mike was a good phone call, but I kind of want to send him into his week and maybe kind of spoil his night and make him sit down and really think something through. Because I know you know it, and, and you know, because I've heard it I've heard it from you a million times, and I wish people would really listen carefully to you how you explain it. But when it comes to, like he was talking about the alt-right, mm-hmm. what he's really talking about and, you know, the broad spectrum, which we don't teach people, we don't teach kids anymore. And I'm actually getting to the point where I, I have done a complicated political spectrum. I keep on a piece of paper in my back pocket, and I've used it many times, like evangelism, to show people right. where the thought process is wrong. Right. But when he talks about the, the um, well, the alt-right, the white nationalists, which suck, Nazis mm-hmm. suck, and so do, so do um, so fascists, anyone right. in that, that area, and the same with uh, Marxists and communists. Mm-hmm. But they're all, they're, they're kin, they're, they're, That's they're right. root, That's Mike, right. is socialist. Socialism cannot be done without force, power, and control. That's what the Nazis were. They hated capitalism. They didn't want freedom. Um, Marx didn't want freedom. And Lenin didn't want freedom. They didn't want people to run their own lives. So to to kind of ruin his night, the alt-right is the right of the left. The big picture is left as a big encompassing body of politic. Right. Yeah, and, and, and a lot of people don't, they, they assume conservatism and um, Republicans, oh, yeah, Republicans could, could be, if they want to control your life, then I, they kick them out of that, 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 that part of the spectrum and push them back down to the left. Right. You know, and oh, and I remember once I talked to you, and I, I, I remember about anarchy, remember I told you, I had, I, um, hell, the far right anarchy, uh, freedom, pure freedom is you circle around. You meet hell of the left, pure totalitarianism. Correct. Yeah. Um, the reason why I put anarchy because I remember as a youth, I read Lord of the Flies. I'm sure you did, which was pure uh, anarchy and freedom. Pure freedom is, is for when you had nobody to rule over you, or you can do what you want, but it, it, it just melts down society. So I put that over there. Because it's, it's, yeah, it's beautiful, it's pure freedom, but if you right. don't have responsibility and self-control and, and discipline and will, you just, you entered hell, hell on the far right, and then hell, that hell meets the far left. It just destroys societies and civilizations. That's why I bent that around to meet each other. So pure freedom at its, at its, its sweet point is actually where the Constitution is, you know, that part of that portion of freedom. But, no, Mike, you know, if you're listening, just understand this. White nationalists—they're—they're—they're they're, they're control freaks. They want to control everybody's butt. Right. They just have—they just have a different constituency that they're looking to benefit. They, yeah. they, they have a different definition. They—they they also believe in the culture of conquest. They also believe yeah. in the oppressor and the oppressed. They just want to—to—they just have a different definition of who ought to be in those categories. Right. And I just and I um I'm, my frustration is is to try to teach tell people this is the big difference it's power we we as people in our constitution we gave uh, you know negative liberties uh, we have the you know the government has we told the federal government what they can't do to us 
but that's the, that's the point where we say, well, we, we'll govern ourselves. But when government has the power, I don't care which little branch that they go off into, Nazism, communism, or whatever, that's where you're moving to the left, mm-hmm. to, to totalitarianism. Oh, and then if I can finish up with the comment, you know, my grandmother said, you know, if somebody's really messing with you and oppressing you or, you know, you think you're being held on, outperform them. <laughs> right. Beat them at their own game. Right. So just show them up. You know, then she said, that's where you want to go. So I don't care what culture... You know, um, you know whether it's white culture, black. You know, I don't give a crap. Rats rear end about that stuff. Right. Just outperform. Do your best. Yeah, you know what? It's harder to put a hard, honest, working, good man. In, right. You know, that's uh, really worked hard. It's harder to be what you would call racist against somebody like that than than anything else. That's it's, correct. It's, you know, it's, I, I'll give you a real world colloquial example okay. of that. I've had a number of jobs that mm-hmm. for for various reasons I did not like or right. the the environment that I was working in I did not like me too I don't work there anymore right that's me how too. I solved it yep I did I developed skills went somewhere else pursued something better that's how you solve the problem that's you, you exactly don't revel in you don't revel in your sense of entitlement you do something about it yep it's, it's um grandma's right out compete them Right. All right. I appreciate the call, Greg. Very, very fantastic call to uh, presumably end our our series of calls this week. It's been a great week for calls. This might be, I'm not even going to say might, this has been the best week of phone calls we've had in the, the tenure of this program. It's been a lot of fun having you guys as part of the discussion, but just to, to put a bow on the point that Greg was making there, because the, the, what we need to do is we need to define our terms, Right. So when we talk about freedom, when we talk about, I'm going to use the term liberty because I think it's more precise. When we talk about liberty, liberty is the condition in which you are free from the initiation of force by other people. So it's, it's, a, it's a scenario wherein you don't have to worry about somebody else taking something from you or assaulting you or keeping you from pursuing your goals. That's the condition of liberty. And so when he talks about anarchy and he, the, the phrase he used was total freedom, there's a little bit of, a, I mean, I understand what he was getting after there, but it's a, it's a little bit uh, mis, misleading to phrase it that way because once you, there is no such thing as the freedom to oppress somebody. There's no such thing as the freedom to violate somebody else's rights. And what anarchy is, is it's that. It's the the unchecked capacity of might to make right. And that's why it properly belongs, as uh, he pointed out, on the left side of the political spectrum. Because it, 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 it shares in common with all of those other things that belong over there. Communism, fascism, authoritarianism of all sorts. A, a value of power, a value of authority for its own sake, above all else. You know, if you don't have the the a a rights respecting, rights honoring government in place to ensure the condition of liberty, you will to one degree or another have authority. And that's why you know when I when I said earlier, one of the things Mike and St. Paul and I got into it about was my contention that I'm much more concerned about the left today that I am about somebody who identifies as a Nazi today. Because today's Nazis, on the on the spectrum, today's Nazis are not taking action to actually infringe upon my liberties. The left is. And that's how I judge people. I judge them based upon their, their, the, their conduct far more than I do their, their words or their ideas. I also judge their ideas, but I'm far more concerned about their conduct. And, and so, you know, the, the, the notion that 
I ought to be concerned because there are there are some people out there who want to do bad things to me. Look, you're right. I should be, and I am, and I speak out fervently against the alt right. The alt right is horrible. They're terrible. They ought to be opposed everywhere they're found. But in terms of ranking them, in terms of imminent threat, they don't hold a candle to where the left is at right now. Good times. You know, there's all kinds of things that we didn't get into. There's a piece at Breitbart. Apparently, there's a production out in L.A. of uh, the Diary of Anne Frank where they've replaced the Nazis in that story with ICE agents and replaced Anne Frank and uh, her family of hiding Jews with uh, Latinos who are hiding from immigration enforcement agents trying to deport them because, yeah, those two things are exactly the same thing. Those two things are exactly the same thing. Now, you know... That little detail you may be familiar with if you've ever read any kind of history. The Nazis killed Jews. They killed them. They put them in concentration camps and executed them. ICE has never done that. Never once. Closing argument. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com.